everyone, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we hope you leave each episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, and my name is Ashling. We have a very special episode today for International Women's Day. Every year, International Women's Day, choose a theme, and this year it's Choose to Challenge. I personally feel really privileged to introduce our guest today, Professor Liz Bentley, Chief Executive at the Royal Meteorological Society. And I just want to tell you, when I first met Liz, she was actually on my board for my final step of becoming a registered meteorologist. And the whole way through the process, I was just thinking to myself, I don't know what it is about this woman, but I really want to get to know her more. And afterwards, I actually reached out to her and just sent her an email and said, look, if I can ever just do anything or work with you in some capacity, I would love to meet you. She just, you were so impressive, Liz, and just completely inspired me to keep doing what I what I was doing. And later I got to work with the Royal Meteorological Society. So first of all, for that, and second of all, thank you for all of the privilege. But Liz, this is a special episode today. It's all about International Women's Day. And you've been in science for nearly 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got a lot of questions to ask you because even since I started in science and I've been working in science about 12 years now, there's been a massive shift even in the short time I've been in my career, uh, the different jobs that women are doing, the amount of women that are in jobs as well. But first of all, we always just love to know with all of our guests, where did that spark of joy come from? Where did your love of weather come from? Well, can I just say, first of all, thank you for the welcome. And yeah, it was a pleasure when we when we managed to kind of cross our paths and have this opportunity to work together. So uh, it's been a delight ever since. So for me, yeah, so I, I, you might tell a little bit, I've got a twang of a Yorkshire accent in here, although I've lived in the <laughs> south of England for the last 25 years, but I grew up in Yorkshire on top of the Pennines in Uddersfield. And uh, the weather was always that little bit more challenging on the top of the Pennines. So, you know, we get some really good winters, lots of snow. Um, I had to walk about a mile and a half to, to school and it was like horizontal rain. So the front half of me was soaking wet and the back was bone dry <laughs> when I got to school. So the weather was always a part of my life. And even from a really early age, my mum my mum will tell a story when I was a baby even. She put me out in the pram uh, in our back garden in July. So I'd only be a few months old and there was a massive thunderstorm uh, and hailstorm golf ball sized hailstones and she ran out to collect me from the pram to get me inside so she will often say that was my first taste of extreme weather <laughs> even as a baby so so I think it was just really having you know such extreme conditions around me I started to just not get interested in weather but just wanted to know why so I was very inquisitive and it grew from there I had a weather station in my back garden when I was a teenager I would try and forecast the weather myself just looking at charts that were in the newspaper Uh, and so a career in meteorology was you know I knew what I wanted to do when I was probably about 13. So I find that quite fascinating that actually you knew that already but you've been in science for nearly 30 years so what type of have you come up against any barriers being a woman in science a lot has changed and and things change all the time they're changing very quickly but did you ever was that ever a barrier for you was it ever assumed that you wouldn't go to university or higher education or 
Yeah, so I think I think partly being a female and, and also I came from a working class background in Yorkshire. So it was a challenge, I think, for my parents to to you know fund me to go to university. Um, and I, I went to I did my undergraduate degree in Newcastle and I did my postgraduate degree in Manchester. And again, even kind of on those courses, there were I, would, I did mathematics at university for both undergraduate and postgraduate. There was a definite balance of more male people doing, you know, the, the maths and science subjects and there were females. Uh, and when I left university, I joined the Met Office. That was my kind of first entry into a career. I worked with the Met Office for about 14 years in lots of different roles. And we'll probably talk about them during this podcast. But it, it very much was a, a kind of male dominated area of, of science. So my first post in a, a, at the Met Office, which was in Bracknell at the time, was in a defence unit, which was predominantly male. So there was one other female in the in the whole of the department. And, you know, many of the jobs that I went into were predominantly male. Uh, it was just the, the nature. Whereas it's really interesting going back and you mentioned the registered meteorologist that you applied for, Ashlyn. Yeah. I've been out to a number of, of different uh, locations that you know, meteorologists work that 20, 25, 30 years ago when I started would have been all male. Mm -hmm. And now there are certainly more females. So it's not just 50-50, there are more females in a lot of these roles. So it's been fascinating to see that transition over the last kind of 20 to 30 years from a very male dominated kind of uh, sector into you know a good balance, certainly 50-50, if not a little bit more kind of skewed towards more females. Yeah, so I, I don't see it listed anywhere that you're a mentor. You know, but actually, for me, when I think of you, that's one of the main things that I think about is your just your natural ability to just connect people together to help people along. Did did you experience that? Was did you ever have any good mentors? Or was that something that you strive to do because you didn't have mentors? No, so I, and I've still got one mentor today that I've had for probably the last 20 years. So he's been kind of fantastic. In fact, we mentor each other, really. We're probably yeah. just good friends now. But I think recognizing the importance of having a good mentor makes you kind of inspired to want to to offer that back as well. And, and I think many of the roles that I've done, I've been very fortunate. So personally, I've gained a lot. I've learned lots of new things. I've had fascinating roles. I've met wonderful people. But being given the opportunity to inspire other people to go on and do and, and you know, empower them and see them excel at the things that really make them passionate is something I can look back on, you know, with fondness. I could probably give you, you know, a number of, of different examples. I used to work at the Met Office College training people and it's wonderful to see how they, a lot of them have gone on into different careers in meteorology and even elsewhere and you bump into them at conferences and events, you know, 20 years later and uh, we, we did a bit of work experience at the Royal Meteorological Society and I remember a young chap came in he was probably 15 at the time he did a week's work experience with him and I've watched him go through university he's done his PhD he's now working at uh, Wallingford he's looking at you know uh, hydrology he's moved slightly out of meteorology but still a definite overlap and it's wonderful to see these people kind of progress off into into their own careers and, and feel that you've maybe had some some sort of influence by kind Kind of having the opportunity to to kind of you know as you say mentor them give them that kind of inspiration and aspirations themselves to move on yeah I mean I'm a, I'm a youth worker I volunteer at my youth, local youth club and so for me it's really important to inspire the younger generation and give them as many opportunities as I can and we can and I was just wondering is there any advice or 
um, anything that you would say to young girls, but not just young girls and young women trying get into getting into meteorology, but any young people trying to get into meteorology? Yeah, so I think for me, any job, whether it's meteorology, do do a job that you would want to do as a hobby and getting paid for it is just a bonus. But, you know, you'll be getting up and going to work. And I did shift work, as I guess you both of you have done, which is tough and challenging. Um, but, you know, you, you've got to love the job that you do, almost love it enough that you do it without getting paid. And as I say, the salary is just a bonus. And I, I, I say that to my kids who who you know, however much I've tried to get them into weather and, and meteorology, they've gone <laughs> off in more arts thing. But do do what, what you're passionate about. And and I would say that to to any young kind of, you know, whether it's female or, or you know, young people just looking at careers, wondering where on earth I'm going to go, what's my future going to bring. Just think about the things that really make you passionate, make you want to get out of bed in the morning, really make you tick. And those are the things that you'll, you know, you'll you'll drive and have the passion for and want to do kind of for, for the rest of your life. Yeah, do you know, that's, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, myself and Gemma, I mean, this whole podcast is about just just what you know after listening we just want you to love the weather a little bit more because that's we are so passionate about it and I really agree with you I don't think you Gemma's still doing shift work I'm, I don't do <laughs> night work anymore a different type of night work but not not paid night work but uh yeah I don't think you could do it unless you really love it but that's great advice I don't think I've genuinely ever had a day where I didn't want to go into work yeah. ever yeah. no me neither yeah no just... absolutely so and, and the weather can be so different from one day to the next that you've just got something new to get your teeth into and just you know nervous. and, and I'm, I'm probably the same as you Ashley and I mean I, I had to give up shift working when I had a family so I was shift working up to when I had my, my son um, back in the well, that would be the late 1990s and I couldn't do shift working anymore. You know, it was just, it was a kind of practical, you know, I, had to, I didn't want to give up work. I really loved my my job, but um, I couldn't, you know, there was no way I could manage shift working at the time. So you move on then and, you know, you face these crossroads in life where you make a decision and you wonder, you look back and you think, oh, you know, if I'd have gone down a slightly different path, where would I have ended up? But I don't regret any of the decisions I've made. I feel I've had some fantastic experiences, but some of them are partly you can, you know, decide upon yourself and others are thrown upon you because of the world around you that's actually something I wanted to ask you about so I do think that there's still quite a lot of inequality that exists for working mothers and I I I love my children I absolutely adore them so I I I don't mean this in, in specific reference to my kids but there is a lot of pressure on me personally sort of there's this idea that I think a woman somehow should look after them more what what would you say to women who perhaps are doing those more complicated um, shift patterns, for example. I mean, every career is complicated, but how do you navigate those roads when you do have those life changes? And then for just the obvious reasons that actually you do need to be the primary carer for at least a period of the time, what yeah. would you what what experiences do you have and what can you tell somebody who who may be either afraid of that or afraid that they that that might change things or just maybe wants that change anyway? Yeah, and I guess so. When I when I um, had my first child, my George, my son, um, so this was ninety seven, and um, it, it was very challenging then. So I think if I remember back, I think I got I only had three months off work. That's all you could get as maternity leave, 
And, you know, it, I, 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 I look back and wonder how on earth I managed it, really. But um, but it, I think I was very fortunate. So at the, when I went back to work, I moved from a shift work role at an outstation as a weather forecaster. And I was a senior Met officer. So I was running the, the unit there. And I went to work at the Met Office College and Obviously, it was Monday to Friday, nine to five kind of job. But I was really fortunate with my kind of line management there that they were extremely understanding. And uh, for example, I was still breastfeeding when I went back Mm. to work. So I needed space to be able to go and do that. And they accommodated that, you know, I didn't feel at all awkward or uncomfortable. Um, they, and, you know, and, and, and again, most of the people I were working with were men. So it, it was quite unusual to to kind of push those boundaries in a very kind of male dominated world. But I was very fortunate. Uh, I could have had a very different experience, very negative experience, but it was really positive. And in fact, I mentioned earlier this mentor that I've known for 20 years. He was part of that kind of group that I was I was certainly working with at the time. And I've kept in touch because he just understood. He he very much knew that it was important, you know, that I felt comfortable and able to 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 still do the job, but recognised that you know bringing up a family and a young family was was you know things happen. I remember when I had um, Amber, my, my second child, you know, she had um, conjunctivitis one day, and I had a big meeting at work. And I was like, well, what do I do? I can't take the day off, and <laughs> you I can't, can't put them into nursery. No. <laughs> no. So I phoned at work and I said, look are you okay if I bring Amber in with me? You know, she's normally quite a placid baby. And yes, so I brought her in. She sat in this car seat, you know, little kind of handle buggy thing and just sat there quietly while I had my meeting for her. So you look back on these things and you think, gosh, these could have gone absolutely devastatingly wrong. But you do it and you just get on and you do it. And you, you remember, Ashley, when you first ventured out with the twins, you thought, how on earth am I going to actually go to the shops or go... And you've you've just got to get out there and do these things and not be fearful, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree. And it actually probably took me about four or five times of by the time I got one in, and then probably needed to change another. But yeah, you you do have to take it, take it bit by bit. But I was very lucky. I had I had a year as maternity leave, so I had much more time to to adjust to that. But that's actually really impressive. It's kind of well ahead of the time, really, to think that you were they were okay about bringing your child in but also that you had the the foresight just to think actually I'm just going to do this this is how I can problem solve this yeah yeah and and I see more and more of that nowadays and it it's still not maybe the accepted norm but it's becoming more acceptable to you know to to balance uh you know not just a, a female's kind of work balance and home balance with the kids but even for men you know paternity leave you know I hear a lot of people I work with you know uh take as much time off and I, I was very fortunate my husband you know would would step up and, and help out and and I think as our careers have moved forward I kind of take a maybe a step back from from being the the main kind of parent and my husband stepped up and and my career kind of advanced on so we I've been very fortunate I think to to have a kind of supportive partner at home and there's a lot of synchronizing of diaries just to make sure we didn't have clashes and occasionally when we did we had to kind of work out what to do but um yeah I think I have been fortunate as well with that yeah when, I was, was going to say when people think of meteorology a lot of people think of forecasting and that's obviously yeah. very shift heavy you have to do night shifts and day shifts and early shifts I was just interested do you think that there's enough jobs and careers out there within meteorology and climatology that aren't shift heavy and are available for people that possibly can't do those shifts and can't work full-time 
Oh, absolutely. And and again, I think just coming from the outside, people, again, probably not just weather forecasting, but assume it, it's been a TV presenter and, and you know presenting the, the weather on the television and that's that's it. But mm. behind the scenes, there's so much that goes on in producing that forecast, um, you know, whether you're working with customers, whether you're involved with more the technology side. And nowadays, obviously, that's a, a significant part of it with, uh, you know, uh, IT platforms and everything's online at the moment. Um, finance, you could you could go off. And, and I think I, if, if I look back at my career, I've wandered off into kind of um, very different jobs and purposely done that. And I'll, I'll kind of expand on that in a minute. But each one has allowed me to stay within meteorology, but each one has been very different and I've gained new skills by doing them. And apart from probably that that short window of about two years when I was forecasting, that was the only shift working. The rest has been, you know, flexible. So I've, sometimes I've worked part time. Sometimes I've been able to do kind of job share. Um, you know, so th there's there's all sorts of different kind of, um, I, I guess, structures out there that do help kind of working mums to be able to fit in, but still be able to do and study and, you know, absorb themselves in, in a topic and uh, that they're interested in. Um, but yeah, so I, 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 there, there are. And we have a student and early career scientist conference that we run at the Royal Met Society. And one of the things I'll often do is get people to talk about the variety of different career opportunities, because sometimes it can feel quite blinkered that there's you know yeah. one or two different kind of roles. But there are hundreds, literally hundreds of different roles out there. It just really depends, again, what you're interested in. If you want to move more into kind of policy and decision making, you can go in that direction. If you want to go into more to business and consultancy work, you can go in that direction. If you're more involved in, you know, developing the science and advancing, you know, the, the core science, you can look at that. There's, there's umpteen different opportunities. It's a, uh, and, and even more so now because it's very interdisciplinary. So mm, yeah, you could yeah. even wander off into to health for a while or engineering or because the, you know, the weather and climate just impacts across so many different sectors. Yeah, actually, we had somebody on a podcast recently who told us that they were said so they're also a qualified meteorologist, but their main role at the moment was about um, water storage mm. and water catchment. It was fascinating, really, yeah. really fascinating. And they said there's and there's elements all the time of of the career that actually I'm still learning about as well. But I do agree with you; it's very you know multi interdisciplinary at the moment. But actually, I think that's a really positive thing and probably something that we all need to remember. And everything. So even if you've never directly worked in meteorology, whatever you have done is can only complement you going forward and give you insight into, you know, other customers or or other, you know, being able to that kind of 3D thinking that you need when you are in science. Yeah. Um, and, and and you were saying about shift working as well. I mean, that that is part of it because it is 24 seven. And, you know, certainly when I was doing people wanted their forecast when they woke up in the morning. So you, you have to be up overnight to kind of prepare all of yeah. that. But I know lots of women who have families, young families and carry on working in shift working. It, it's a, an extra challenge, but they you know, it's still possible to do that. So for me, I made the choice to come away from shift working. And I'm sure the same for you, Ashlyn. But, you know, it, it, it still is an option and it is getting easier. The You know, the the employers are becoming much more flexible in, in how they can try and manage that. Um, so I wouldn't rule out shift working even with a young family. Absolutely. And they mm. don't stay young forever either, do they? Things exactly. things change so quickly. Mine is starting to talk back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> but Liz, you've had such an amazing varied career. 
actually, one of the things I really want to talk to you about is your time in the Ministry of Defence. I'm so curious about it, but I'm going to start by asking you, do you have any favourite moments or any real standout moments through your career where you thought that made me better, that, you know, that, that, whether it was a good or a bad situation made me better? Oh, far too many. I think we'd be on for hours. Um, so I feel very privileged to have done pretty much every job that I've been, you know, some of them were planned. So I definitely had my eye on some of those roles, you know, early on in my career. And I kind of in the back of my head, I'd love to do that job someday and, and actually managed to do it. Some have been planned, some have not been planned. And I've just, you know, you've been browsing around and suddenly you see a job pop up and you think, oh, that looks really interesting. And off you go in a very different direction. I guess I worked at the BBC Weather Centre for about four years and, and that was when it was a uh, TV centre. So, you know, White, uh, White City. And that was a fascinating place to work. A fan fantastic group of people. Um, and I, I mean, certainly I'll, I'll be honest, when I when I started work at the BBC Weather Centre, it was it was quite a challenge. So um, my my role was very new before I took on the role. Somebody who was broadcasting would have also managed the Weather Centre at the same time. So it was kind of 50 50 job. But the, the team there had expanded significantly over you know the last the, the kind of few years running up to that. It had gone from being maybe a team of about seven, just covering you know the main BBC channels, to having what was called BBCI at the time, but the kind of News 24 and huge growth, and the team expanded to about 30. So the person who managed the Weather Centre needed to just be fully managing full time and not mm. not partly presenting as well. So this was a new job that had come around, and I saw it and I thought I've, I've got to go for that. And and that was a really interesting time, interesting four years. We almost saw a massive transition of what went on at the BBC. And I feel really privileged to have been part of that. That includes the new graphic system that came in. So we moved away from, you know, the magnetics and the, the, the symbols and so forth into the graphics that we pretty much see today. I know it's done a few iterations um, and just feel privileged to have been part of that. I worked at the Met Office College for a few years and again, absolutely loved being part of that and I've got fond memories of just trying to bring some of the complicated bits of science to life in a classroom and you two have probably done some training so you'll be familiar with things like uh, potential vorticity oh, and vorticity no, yeah. so you know I was on these spinny chairs in the classroom <laughs> yeah. trying to kind of you know show people how you can spin things up spin air up and spin it down and you know and, and people will come up after us oh my god that was amazing you yeah. I, I can now see that i can visualize quite a mm -hmm. complex thing so you know there's there's lots of different examples for lots of different reasons but usually it's about the people that you engage with and are working with and the pleasure that you get from that that's probably you know the key element to to most of those kind of positive experiences definitely yeah, yeah. And also sometimes when they don't go right as well, I've definitely some of it's like some of my worst job interviews have led on to some of my best outcomes where obviously I realize now they were in sort of the path for me and then it all just makes makes you better at what you do. It's true. Yeah. Those tricky night shifts when everything goes wrong and you think, <laughs> oh, no. But then you come out the other side and you think, actually, I've learned so much from that experience. And then yeah. the next time you think, oh, this is probably going to happen and I can take that skill that I've learned forward and 
make sure that that doesn't go wrong next time. (laughs) Another motto that I have for my kids, you'll make mistakes throughout all your life, but learn from them, you know, try, try not to make them again. And it's all about, you know, it's important that we, we, we feel comfortable in the environment around us and the people that we work with. We can make these mistakes. That's, that's part of life, but it's about learning from them and then, you know, taking it forward to, to the next thing. That's actually really lovely advice. So tell us more about your time in the Ministry of Defence. Yeah, so um, I, I, I'd been at the BBC for four years and I really was looking for a dramatic change. And uh, I'd started looking around for some jobs and, and a lot of them were kind of just a slight different kind of shift to what I was doing. And then this job came up at uh, the Ministry of Defence. So it was at the Research Acquisition Centre, which was based in Shrivenham on a, on a military base where they do most of the high level training for senior uh, people within the MOD. And I was basically looking after what they call the operating environment. So everything from the seabed out into space, uh, they call the operating environment. So where, you know, military will operate in. And I was involved with all the research programs that were part of that operating environment. So it had oceanography and, you know, anything to do with um, underwater vehicles and uh, you know, measuring data, collecting data in the ocean. So you're probably aware of the Argo floats that go around collecting data in uh, in the oceans. And, you know, part of the thing that we feed into numerical models, I had a massive, you know, it was I think it was something like £40 million budget just looking after these Argo floats and, and how we would fund them uh, internationally. Um, right through the atmosphere and again you know you think about the environment that the military work in so at the time there was quite a lot of work in the middle east and you know so dust forecasting was a big problem so we were we were running a load of research uh, projects to look at how we can provide better forecasts on dust you know in the atmosphere right through to climate change so again i was managing the the government's um climate change program which was mainly going to the hadley center at the met office at the time um, so it had a huge range. And, and again, I'd, I'd kind of learned a lot up to that point. But boy, did my kind of knowledge expand because, you know, I was pushing boundaries for myself, which is what I wanted to do. I really wanted to kind of, you know, take myself and, and throw myself in the deep end and really challenge myself and really kind of try and expand my own knowledge. But a bit like we were saying before, it was a very male dominated environment. And the the team that I worked in, so you had other people who were looking at other elements, whether that was equipment or, um, you know, machinery or um, ammunition or whatever, very male dominated mm-hmm. uh, area. And, you know, it, it's hard. It's very different working in a male, completely male dominated environment than it is, say, mixed or all female. But, I, I, you know, I'm quite happy with that. I'm quite comfortable. You know, I don't feel out of my depth, really. But it is different. You have to recognize that. But with the Ministry of Defence, I got so many opportunities. So, you know, to travel, uh, you know, meetings in bunkers behind lead walls with, you know, a phenomenal experience. Uh, I, I'm really glad I did it. It was one of those where I, you know, really threw myself in at the deep end and kind of out of my comfort zone in lots of different ways. But I'm really, really glad. It was a couple of years of my life I really enjoyed. I do, I do have a question for you about that, actually. So what what was it? How did you know? What was that point that you thought, okay, I've done four years here um, at the BBC Weather Centre. It's time for change when you know when did that thought start to grow yeah interesting 
Um, so I guess I've always, I'm always looking for new things. So again, another kind of thing I will often say to my kids is try and learn something new every day. So you, you know, whatever it is, big or small, and that's my kind of mantra, I guess, for myself is I just want to learn. I want to to delve into new things and and you can do that naturally in jobs most days but I guess once once the job becomes quite repetitive and the same things come round again and you start to lose those opportunities to learn lots of new things that's usually the point where I start to get itchy feet and start to think I need something more I need a new challenge I need something that will stretch me or I'll learn something new and Sometimes the job that you're in will change and allow that to happen. And I found that very much at the Royal Met Society. I've been here, I can't believe I've been here 12 years. I never envisaged I would be at the Royal Met Society for 12 years, but I'm in my third job at the society. Mm. And there's always something new coming in that I kind of sat here thinking, I don't want to go yet. I'm, I want to get, <laughs> I've got a new exciting yeah. project to get my teeth into. So you can stay within the same job or the same role, but it, I think it has to evolve and change and there has to be new things for me to, that, that come in because it's the repetitive samey stuff that I just start to, I start to switch off a little bit. The thirst for knowledge is great. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, that's knowledge in the science, but it might be, you know, I might just want to kind of explore maybe a technological side of things. There might be something I just want to, you know, I do a lot of media and I, I never thought I would really get involved with media, uh, but I love it. And I, you know, I, I get a buzz from it, if I'm honest, just testing new things out. And, you know, at the moment, everything's online. I'm having to do kind of interviews down Zoom calls like we've got now. And just just testing and, and advancing and learning, whether it's the science or, or things that we kind of have to use in day to day. Yeah, that, that's me. That's my mantra, I guess. A lot of your roles have been communicating weather. And obviously the, the job that you do at the moment at the Royal Met, it's very much communicating the weather to people. How important do you think that is in communicating it amongst meteorologists, but also communicating the weather and all the science that goes behind it to the public so that they will understand it? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's probably one, as you say, one theme that's run through most of the jobs that I've done is, is the communication element. And, and you'll know this, you know, you can be exceptionally bright and gifted and know a lot of things. But if you can't communicate it, then, you know, that it's lost. It, it yeah. won't get to, to the people that it needs to get to or it won't have the emphasis that it needs uh, in, in, to make an impact. And, and I learned that quite quickly, I think. Uh, maybe there's a bit of a natural skill in there, but it's certainly something that you you learn to grow and develop in, in the various roles. And and again, another kind of, you know, uh, suggestion I give to the kids is to, to put themselves forward to do kind of presentations, to get involved, to, to even if it's written, whether it's written or oral, or it doesn't matter because it's such a skill, it's such a life skill to have. And it's so important. And, and again, when you've when you've got a topic like weather that you know it's it's we're so fortunate that we've got such a really interesting and visually stimulating topic and and the world around the people around us just want to talk about it so it's it, it's really easy to have those conversations because everybody's got an interest in the weather even if they you know they say they haven't they, they do some are more obsessed than others like probably the three of us here <laughs> Um, but you know, we we all we all want to talk about the weather, and and so to be able to be part of that, to kind of share my enthusiasm, to share my knowledge, to be able to kind of educate other people, I, I take as a real you know, it's a real pleasure for me to do that. It, it's quite interesting, actually, having you know, when I when I look back at the history of what you've done, your your communication initially probably quite a sort of um, 
you know, a more of a tunnel thing where maybe you were teaching one person or a class, but myself as part of the society, even in the short time I've been in it, I feel like it has become a focal point for a much wider public, you know, a, a huge outreach. Um, in, uh, just for example, uh, keeping us all up to date on the latest climate science training, any broadcaster out there has been trained by you and the society's um, outreach just feels like it's more important than ever before. Yeah, absolutely. So before I moved to start work at the Royal Met Society, I, the, the person who ran it at the time was Paul Hardacre. And I'd, I'd known Paul for a number of years. And I, I, I watched with interest how, you know, the, the society was evolving under kind of Paul's leadership. And I wanted to be part of that. And I remember having a discussion with him and saying, you know, if there's any opportunities, I'd be really interested because it really felt like, you know, that it, we were taking the Royal Meteorological Society from almost the 1900s into the 21st century, you know, and almost skipping the 20th century in between, but really, really advancing it and and recognising the importance as the kind of learned and professional society and, and what it can achieve and what it can do. And I, I'm always, every year when we, you know, we look back at the previous year, I'm always amazed at how much I've got such a small team you know, I'm very reliant on volunteers to, to help us deliver on the work that we do. But I'm always amazed how much we achieve each year in a range of different things. But a lot of that is about how we can communicate the science or we bring people together to communicate the science or we, you know, we we, we um, inspire kind of the next generation of meteorologists. It's, it's all it, it, a lot of it is just communication, isn't it? It's different ways and different ways we share things. Uh, and and so I'm really it is, it's a re I'm really proud really to be to to have been involved in that progression and and obviously to be kind of you know heavily involved in leading it now. I've attended a few of the um, Royal Met Society um, like virtual meetings and uh, webinars last year. I was like I'm going to really focus and I'm going to start learning more and branching out into different areas that maybe I didn't know a lot about. And I must say that those virtual meetings and webinars are amazing because they just introduce you to areas that maybe you don't really know that much about it's an amazing resource that that you have available if anyone's just got an interest in where they can they can they can join along and I was just wondering are there any other resources available for people to just delve into into meteorology maybe they've got an interest in it or they've got a, a child that's interested in meteorology any resources that they can sort of just dip into yeah, so um, I mean, I was heavily involved about 10 or so years ago, we launched something called the Weather Club. And this is what we call the public outreach arm of the Royal Met Society. So it was it's branded differently. It's got a slightly different feel to it, but it is really pitched at a general public audience. Originally, when we launched it, it had a magazine, a quarterly magazine, a kind of seasonal magazine that came through. Um, and we, we've ended up making it more on a web platform at the moment. But it, it's a great place because, again, there's lots of interesting facts, but it's written in in a kind of non-technical way. It's quite accessible, but it allows you if you if you get to the end, you think, I want to find out more. There's usually you know where you can go next and take mm -hmm. it to the next level, take take the next step, really. So that, that would be one place. Um, we started running online courses, MOOCs, they're called Massive Online Courses. Uh, and we run one on the FutureLearn platform called Come Rain or Shine. And again, it's a free resource to go and tap into. It's You can typically do the course over a three-week period. It's a few hours each week. And you'll get absorbed in 
whether it's air masses and fronts and being able to try and forecast the weather and just learn a lot more about the weather. So there's loads of free resources out there. And then the final thing, which again, the Royal Met Society has, has launched is, um, it's called MetLink and it's designed for teachers, but there's tons of free resources on there that is more curriculum focused, but you can pick up resources and lesson plans and ideas and just bring a concept to life. And that's again, as I say, all freely available on, on the MetLink website. So a few places, even just that the Royal Met Society has, has kind of been involved in producing. And again, you know, as a charity, it's it's part of our charitable kind of aim to to use any surplus that we have to deliver all of these functions for free. And, and the more we can do, I think the better. Yeah, I think actually that's the one thing about the society and weather in general. It's very accessible and with access to the Internet you can just learn a lot and also just dropping somebody an email. You just never know, you know, if they're going to reply. I've often been sent an email, somebody saying, how, how did you get into this? And they're always very surprised if I reply back. So <laughs> it, it is, but it, sometimes it's just about asking questions, isn't it? Encouraging, encouraging people to ask questions. Yeah. And, and as you say, it, it's all kind of accessible to, to most people online. Um, so, you know, if, if you've, if you dip in and you find it's not quite the right level and you need to kind of step back a little bit first, you know, usually you've got pointers to kind of move you around and you don't, you know, if you, if you were attending a physical event or having to go somewhere and you're not quite sure, you'd probably be tempted not to bother. But I think the online version, it's, it makes it just easier just to try a few things. If it doesn't work, try something else. Yeah. It allows you to manage your time much, much easier as well. I feel like it's very important actually that we have at least a, a snippet of a conversation about climate change. Obviously we've had this global pandemic, which has, I think, impacted every single solitary person's life. So it went on hold just for a little bit, but that conversation is now becoming a little louder again. What, what do you think as communicators and uh, or what would you say to young people who might be listening or to anybody? What would you say about climate change? Yeah, I, I, I mean, a topic that has, you know, the, the agenda has changed, I think, quite significantly in recent years. Hence, hence a lot of the training we've been delivering to, as you say, the broadcast meteorologists, because even just go back a few years, there was there was a reluctance to, to talk about climate change. You know, let's talk about the weather and talk about this hurricane event. But I can't go on to answer the question, you know, about are we going to see more hurricanes in the future? Is this down to climate change? And that that conversation has changed. You know, there's an acceptance that climate change is happening. Uh, and so instead of having a discussion about is it real or not, we, we've, we've moved on to, well, so what are the impacts and what can I do about that? Um, and, you know, they, they can be quite challenging questions, um, you know, especially, you know, if you've if you've not if you've been kind of almost spent most of your career avoiding those questions or being told yeah. to avoid them in a yeah. sense to suddenly be you know asked to kind of give a, a quite a succinct short answer to quite a complex uh, topic can be quite challenging. And so the training that you mentioned earlier, Ashlyn, you know, we, we've provided to the broadcast meters to just help to update them in the science, bring, you know, the, we can practice in a kind of safe environment trying to answer some of those questions and, and tease them out. And it's wonderful to see them then being used. I mean, you know, on, on ITV and BBC and Sky, 
they've been given this, you know, the, the tools to go and do it. And I'm seeing it coming out on broadcast on an almost daily basis. So again, I'm really proud to have been part of, of that kind of journey with them. For, for young people really interested in this, I mean, I think just just find out more question. Again, it's, it goes back to my kind of mantra of wanting to learn. Constantly learn, ask questions, why, how, what, you know, the, the kind of just penetrate in as much as you can, but use your voice. So as a as a young person, your voice is is really powerful and it will make changes. Speak to to your family members and your friends about it. Have those conversations. It might feel awkward at first, but you know it, it's as, it's it should be just as natural as talking about the weather. And and you know if you want to kind of get more active, write to your MP. You know use your voice, use your statement, and that then will you you can make individual choices yourself. There's all things things that we can do as individuals, but once you start to kind of use your voice, you'll see that the changes happening. At, kind of business level and government level as well. So I think, you know, it's recognising that the, the, your voice is, you know, is, is very strong. I, I agree with you there as well. And I think it's very important to remember that actually just sitting down and writing an email, whether it's to your MP or to somebody you wanted advice from or somebody you saw on the telly or some article you read online, do it, you know, don't don't expect somebody else to do it for you. Take take a step yourself to um to learn forward and also it, like you say it can be scary the first time you do it but it gets easier and easier and you get better and better at doing things like that yeah and and again you'll you've got you've got your voice but i guess the decisions that you make as well so it's hard at first when you're trying to kind of push something forward that uh, you know that the norm around you is different but eventually you start to see because more and more people start to push in a direction probably a nice example is is just veganism you know mm. if you go back five years it was almost impossible to kind of find vegan food in the supermarket now you've got a whole yeah. section of vegan food and it's it's more accepted as a norm you know it's not there's not an expectation that we all have to become vegans but you know to try and experiment and try things out and and you know mm. it, it's it's just easier and that's because we we've, we've been asking for it or people have been asking for it and then eventually you know the the supermarket step up and start to deliver because there's a there's a demand there yeah it's an important point as is as well I'm recently been learning about my own carbon footprint I'm quite fascinated and if I'm honest shocked at times about some of the decisions I make that turn that footprint into a much higher carbon footprint but hopefully going forward these are like you say this, these conversations that we'll be having on a day-to-day -day basis and it will make it easier to make decisions because at the moment, you still have to look up that stuff to see how big yeah. these things are. But actually, hopefully going forward, that will be something that will become more visible to us. Yeah. And some of those decisions people will make for other reasons. So it might save them some money. It yeah, might be a no, healthier course, option, yeah. but it has a positive impact on the environment. So, you know, there's usually there'll be there'll be certain things that are probably easier decisions to make because you get other benefits alongside them. And then there'll be some challenging ones in there. And they're, they're the hard nuts to crack, really. But I've been quite fortunate at the moment. So um, you'll be aware, I think, the citizen assemblies took place across the UK, uh, I think it was a year ago. Um, you know, to bring the public together to look for kind of solutions and ways forward. So I've been asked to 
get involved with a similar event across Jersey, the island of Jersey. So a smaller scale, a smaller community led, but it's following the same process. So we're, we're running a series of citizen assemblies in Jersey. It'll all be virtual because of the pandemic. But yeah, again, a really fascinating project to get involved with and, and you know, to, to help people to, to recognise the kind of power that they have as individuals, but together as, a, as an island kind of nation and as a community, they can make some really significant changes. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't I didn't realise that was going ahead in Jersey. Uh, so Liz, we do like to get find out a little bit more about you that maybe it's not science related. So Gemma's put together a couple of quick fire round questions. Now they're supposed to be quick, but I often interrupt with like a million side <laughs> questions. So um, you'll just have to bear with me because I think there's just a part of me that's very nosy. So <laughs> I've learned just to leave a leave a little silence after the answer because I know that Ash is going to ask another question afterwards. <laughs> perfect away you go okay so the first uh, question is your favorite season oh gosh okay so I guess the first thing to say is that I feel really fortunate that I live in a country that has seasons so you know we get to experience the different seasons because I think that's really important Uh, I'd go for spring spring probably is my favorite because I just feel like everything's going in the right direction so you know I look outside at the moment you know, my daffodils are growing in the garden, the days are getting longer, you know, everything feels like it's moved. There's that anticipation of what's to come with summer, which I also love, but spring, yeah, probably my favourite. I don't have a side question for that because spring is also my favourite for the <laughs> exact same reason. That is the right answer. <laughs> it's, it's true though, like I went, for, when you go for a walk around the park at the moment, you just see like the daffodils and all the snowdrops coming out and you just think there's just so much hope and joy in that, mm. that it just brings a smile to your face and you just can't help but just feel a little bit happy when you see that little sign that things are starting to change yeah and and I love gardening so seeing that change the spring change you know having had a winter where things are a little bit bare and you know how to cut cut back and there's no real color in the garden to suddenly see everything coming to life oh it's wonderful you agree favorite cloud oh gosh that's a good one uh so I probably are gonna go for uh, lenticular cloud so these are clouds they're often confused with ufos in the sky so they're kind of lens-shaped clouds that form near mountains Uh, and sometimes you get just one kind of lens cloud sometimes they stack up into multiple clouds but they can be absolutely spectacular clouds so lenticular clouds they are a wonderful cloud and i'm always so amazed as well I mean I often get pictures of them across Lincolnshire and it just really brings to life that idea of wave motion in the atmosphere if you if you couldn't visualize it that is definitely a way to do it yeah yeah exactly so so you suddenly realize that the atmosphere has is like a fluid it flows it moves and you know that that cloud is a a definite indication of something going on in the atmosphere it it has kind of real meaning you know it means that the air's flown over the mountains and you've got that kind of wave motion so yeah lenticular for me tea or coffee oh definitely tea that's an easy one so I do I do like coffee in the morning but tea or if I had choice then tea all the way I'm a big tea drinker I have often a big mug of tea sat by the side of me pretty much permanently so yeah love tea are you all familiar with that (laughs) we all have a cup of tea I think on this chat (laughs) (laughs) Um, are you a biscuit dunker uh yes uh it depends on the biscuit so um if it's chocolatey kind of coated then probably not um but if it was just a, a plainy biscuit then absolutely yeah dunk it in the tea 
And I've had, mm. like everybody else, I've had the uh, the error where it breaks off and lands in the bottom of your teacup. Oh, breaching yeah. the optimum time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always think I've probably got an extra little second of this dunk and then it oh, drops yeah. you like, oh, no. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> I should have taken it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, snow, yes or no? Oh, definitely snow. Gosh, I'm I'm a big kid when it comes to snow. I get so excited when it's in the forecast. And if if it doesn't come off and I, you know, if the forecast says it's snow overnight and I open my curtains in the morning, it's not there. I'm grumpy for a few hours. <laughs> um, and and it, it, it does. It reminds me of my childhood. So, again, I mentioned I grew up in Yorkshire. We had we used to get really snowy winters and, you know, so sledging with, with my friends and trudging off to school in deep snow. And I, I just have fond memories of it as a child. So I, when it, whenever I hear it mentioned, yeah, I love it. But I'm conscious, you know, people don't. It's like, it's a bit like Marmite. You love it or you hate it. And if you've got to travel somewhere in the snow, you know, it's quite mm. dangerous. So you can understand. But yeah, I'm a snow lover. Myself and Gemma have always just find this massive irony in the fact that if you're the person that's forecast the snow on shift and then you need to be on shift the next day, that you need to, <laughs> to get into yes. Yeah. yes, that's true. <laughs> I once remember saying to my mum, I was like, it was when I first started in my, my in my job, the trains weren't running. And I said to my mum, what is the irony that I've been snowed in and I have to get to work to forecast the snow that is currently falling? I was like, I have to get to work somehow. I just yeah. don't know how this is going to happen. Well, let me tell you. So my first day at the Met office, um, I, I was I'd come down from Huddersfield. I was originally going to come down on the Sunday and start work on the Monday morning and it snowed. And boy, yep. did it snow. And I went, I walked to like the main road, which was about a mile away to see if that was clear. And it wasn't. And I thought, there's no way I'm going anywhere here. So I woke up on the Monday morning and it, it started to clear a bit. And I thought, well, I'll try and set off. It took me seven hours to get from Yorkshire down to Bracknell. And I turned up, I was late. And I'd, I'd phoned the Met office to tell them I was going to be late. I arrived at about two o'clock in the afternoon and it was Christmas party. So I walked in and it was December time. And it was like, I was handed a glass of wine or something and said, so oh, welcome. And I was like, wow, this is great. But yeah, so snow snow has uh, affected me work as well. So yeah. But you showed the commitment because you still got in the car and you still drove That's all that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, even when I was looking at university courses, I came down to look at Reading University. I was thinking about doing a joint uh, meteorology and mathematics degree. And again, it snowed the day I tried to come down to, to Reading. And I thought, God, it's a long way to Reading because it took me forever to get down on the train because of the snow. Uh, and I ended up going to Newcastle, which probably just as far the other way. But, you know, I didn't have any problems when I travelled up to Newcastle. It didn't feel quite as far away. Interesting so. that you've ended up in, in, in Reading. So maybe yeah. maybe snowfall is your, your universal karma. Yeah, I think so. Sprinkling the way be. for you. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a fruit or veg, what would you be? Uh, so either fruit or veg or a particular fruit or veg? A, a particular fruit or veg. Oh, interesting. Mm. Oh, now they've stumped me with that one. So I think I'm going to go for fruit because uh, I like you. I tend to eat quite a lot of fruit. I'm probably going to go for a berry and I'm probably going to go for a strawberry, I think. Mm, good choice. Uh, and I, I don't really know why, apart from they're, you know, sweet and juicy. So it's a bit corny, but there you go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Have you got a hidden talent? Um, okay, so I, I like painting. Uh, I find painting quite therapeutic. So I, I often will take um, some watercolour paints on holiday and put, put them in the suitcase and paint while I'm away. 
Uh, I'm learning to play the drums. Um, so I'm doing grade wow. one drumming. And I turned 50 a couple of years ago, and I think I had my midlife crisis and thought, what, what haven't I done that I want to do? So I bought myself an electronic drum kit, and I, I don't annoy Amazing. the neighbours because I put my headphones on, so I'm learning to play drums. And I, a while ago, I haven't done it for ages, but I used to do ballroom and Latin dancing. And it was partly because my daughter did, I mean, she was really exceptionally good. She would go off to lots of competitions. And we used to just, my husband and I used to just sit at the school watching her, you know, when she was younger, because we'd have to take her and bring her home. And we both said, why don't we learn to dance? So we did. And for about four years, we were having lessons. We started competing which was a bit wow, a bit of a challenge, um, but I, I love doing that. That was great. It was it was great in lots of ways. So drumming's the same actually. You've got to completely shut off. Mm. Um, I can't I can't think of anything else when I was dancing because I mess up my steps. And the same with drumming because it's a bit like patting your head and rubbing your tummy. You're playing the right. drums and your feet at the same. So you've got to completely shut off everything else. So it's my downtime. It's how I relax. It's how I forget about, you know, the stresses of the world, really, and, and just shut off. What's your favourite thing yeah. to drum to? Well, it's interesting. So I'm doing grade one. I've only really just started it. Um, and, but it's, it's fascinating. There's, there's lots of modern songs that I get. So I've had some Coldplay songs. Oh, yeah, I'm doing an, an Usher song at the moment, which I'd never heard of. But my daughter's singing along to it while I'm playing. So, yeah, all sorts of things. But it's... the funkier, the better for me. I quite like funky mm. kind of songs to play along to. Have you got a favourite style of ballroom or Latin dancing? I used to do a bit of ballroom and Latin. I did it through uni and actually the same as you. I've always done like dancing or I used to do baton twirling as well. And I used yeah. to find made my memory brilliant because I could remember routines. But also it was that focus. It was time to shut off. And just I found yeah. during my exams, it was just that time away from not worrying about studying and just to dance. Yeah. So I actually like a lot of the days, probably easy to tell you the dancers that I didn't like. So things like the rumbo <laughs> I didn't like because it's a bit yeah. too slow yeah. and the pasodoble was a bit too stompy for me. But, you know, cha-cha-cha and a jive used to love doing those as Latin. Ballroom, you know, a good waltz, a foxtrot, even a, a quick step, even though you were absolutely exhausted when you finished. Yeah. I, I just love it. Just and And, you know, m my husband would always say I would lead, which um, is probably me. <laughs> Um, but you know, I just yeah, just just being kind of whizzing around the dance floor, you know, just feeling like I don't know, just feeling like you're on a different different planet. Really, it was it was just escapism. It was fantastic. Yeah, you. I did it at Redden Uni, and um, there wasn't enough men. Which I'm always like, men okay. come to ballroom dancing because yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. So I always had to be a man, and then I started doing lessons in London, and then I was I was like, I can't do the women's steps I, yeah. I, have to be the man. I don't know I don't know how to do it anymore <laughs> exactly so so we, we used to take my son along to the lessons and every time he walked in oh you've got a long leg oh do you want to dance and I'm, I'm, I'm not dancing <laughs> if you could invite three people to dinner they could be dead or alive um who would you invite oh good question gosh uh right so I've kind of done this the opposite way. We've we've talked about this with the kids, but if we could go back in time and meet somebody, so it's a similar kind of thing. So I'd probably want to uh, I'd probably want to meet Jesus. I'm not very religious, but I would find that a really interesting kind of conversation to to just mm -hmm. go back and and understand, I guess, get some clarity of of kind of what happened, uh, you know, of all the, the stories that you get from from the Bible. So he would probably be on my list. Oh, good question. Hmm. 
So we 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 often, I mean, I I do. I'm quite fascinated by history. So I think most of the people that would have would be historical kind of figures. Mm -hmm. Um, And and unfortunately, that probably means most of them might be men, but I'd probably go for Queen Elizabeth I. So I'd be really interested. And I was going to say Henry VIII, but I think probably someone from that era, I'll go for Queen Elizabeth I. And particularly as a a kind of female ruler of a country, Mm -hmm. you know, having never really kind of had one before, I just think it would be really interesting to get her, her perspective on things. Who else? So I'm probably going to go for actually a relative. So um, my mum's mum, so my grandma on my mum's side, kept a really good family tree and it went way back. And so it was really interesting to see how our family kind of come from. We originally were from Wales, believe it or not, but kind of a mining family came across. But it's interesting just going back about kind of four or five generations and people. So I'd probably want to kind of delve into an old family relative, maybe from a time either around maybe First World War or something like that. So I haven't got one in particular, but but maybe just to have that family connection and just explore kind of their life and, the, you know, how they... Uh, the challenges I guess they had at the time and and to, to talk to them about how the family has progressed and what we've done and where we are and so I think that would be a really interesting one to have as well that's a yeah, great one that's a great one yeah I really like that but this is the strange one that Ash always gets a bit <laughs> she doesn't understand she doesn't she just doesn't she doesn't get it she's just not keen on it um fingers for toes or toes for fingers <laughs> fingers for toes so Basically, I can have my fingers on my hand and my feet, or I can yeah. have toes on my hand. Okay, I understand. Uh, I think it's going to be fingers for toes. So I'd like, I, I, I do appreciate kind of being able to use my hands. I talked about doing art and things. Yeah. So having, having, I, I think I would really miss not having fingers. Hmm. And you could just do so much more. You could play the drums and you paint at the same Take time. The multitasking oh you could do. <laughs> oh, definitely. Bingo. So, um, Liz, we have so thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today. We do like to leave each episode with just a little weather wisdom or explain uh, something a little bit about the weather. Today, we thought it would be April showers. And um, the reason we picked this today is because if you look at the satellite, there are just tiny hints of a little bit of daytime convection, just a little sign that the land is starting to heat up. So would you like to explain April showers today? Yeah, so good one. So uh, as you say, we get into April and the temperatures are really starting to kind of creep up enough to provide uh, convective clouds. So convective cloud comes from, uh, you know, the, the land heating up, it warms the air, the air rises and, and cools and forms into cloud. And if the clouds are deep enough and there's enough moisture within them, then we get uh, rain falling from them as showers. And yeah, so April showers. And I think, you know, I, I guess, a final thing, really, and as meteorologists, we we often, um, I guess, can define showers. But to to someone in the public, it's it is just rain. Yeah. And I'll often yeah. say to my husband, "Oh, we've, we, it's it's just a quick shower. Yeah. It might last. <laughs> it might like it might go on, but it, it is a convective shower. But it might last yeah. for quite a long time. And to him, it's just rain. Yeah. So I think we get more obsessed by showers as meteorologists than maybe the public. Oh, we definitely do in April because that's when that switch happens. You know, there's more daylight, the land and finally starts to heat. We don't pay too much attention to them during the summer, do we? It's just in April when it starts. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've enjoyed this episode today, we would love it if you would subscribe, um, if you would rate us and leave us a review. I mean, we would love a five star. But yeah, I mean, we're not asking for much, but you know. Anything above, four and above. Pretty special guests today as well, so... (laughs) 
<laughs> if you want to um, have more weather in your life, you can join us on Instagram. We are for the love of weather. On Twitter, we are the number four um, love of weather. And we just really hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you leave us today loving the weather just that little bit more. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure today. This hour has gone by way too fast, but we've both really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.